0: And Al Warren, heard on KCB, 106.5 FM Los Angeles,
3: 102.3 FM Riverside,
2: and 1050
3: AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren sitting at the controls. Now, my co-host today is Mr. Jeff MacArthur. Hello. Yeah, you haven't been around for a while. It seems like it was... I don't know, when was the last time we were, last summer or something? I was a long time ago. I went into hiding. You went into hiding. I know <laughs> you, were being, you were being running from the law. Me and my cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, we, we can't tell people what you were doing. because <laughs> It was fun. Well, that's, that's all that matters. And the cats oh, are still alive.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that was the whole point. <laughs> and we'll have to, that's a whole other story we'll, we'll make up later on.
3: Yeah, yeah, we'll make it good,
2: you know. (laughs) Really good.
3: Well, now speaking of stories, now we've had this uh, man on before, and he's a really good writer. So this is a a new book coming out. Uh, The new book is called Roos. Um, This is um, really an unusual, let's just say I didn't expect this out of him, because the last book we had him on was for the uh, Malibu burning. And um, so, Mr. Robert Kirkbeck, uh, how are you doing today?
1: i'm doing great al and nice to meet you jeff i'm really happy to be here again you had me back so i guess i did something right (laughs)
3: well (laughs) well yeah you know the the malibu burning was very interesting to me i found that because you know uh in my canadian home the people that know i'm up in their their wine country and all the uh it's it's the little desert part so it's really hot here we get fires every year now just like california Mm. so i really relate it to how you were describing things about how fast it moved and, and, and the um, true-to-life story that you give in that book. So,
1: Yeah, well, uh, writing Malibu Burning was a real labor of love. I mean, as you recall, you know, my, my wife and child and I fought to save our home, which we did barely, um, uh, and we, in doing so, we saved our homes, but uh, saved our home when 17 of 19 on our street burned to the ground. And um, so I wrote the book starting with my story and then I um, did uh, maybe about 20 or so other stories of people, some losing their homes, you know, people saving animals, firefighters fighting the fire, firefighters refusing the fight to fight the fire, all of the different things that went on in the chaos of this massive fire that burned half of Malibu down. And um, and I'm just grateful that the book was really uh, well-received. It won a number of awards, and, and I continue, even today, to get asked to write about wildfires and to speak to organizations to help uh, prevent wildfires and to help homeowners be better prepared. And that's something I really enjoy doing because a lot of the stuff um, is really not that difficult to do, nor is it that expensive to do. And you can really give your home a fighting chance in a wildfire. And unfortunately, as we see in the news, we're having more fires, not fewer fires. We're having larger fires, not smaller fires. And so, you know, that, that kind of information is really important for people to have because nobody should lose their home. Um, because in most cases, you don't just lose the home, you lose every single thing you've ever had. And that's really pretty horrific.
3: Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be getting better. Right. Like every year we seem to get more fires and it's earlier and lasts longer. And and um, things are not um, things are not cooling down, as they say.
1: No, I mean, you know, I as I documented in the book and now and then the last couple of years we've had fires that have even dwarfed the fires that just a few years ago were the largest fires we'd ever had. So, uh, you know, the fires are just getting bigger and faster. And it's now gotten to the point where a lot of times the fire departments, they don't even try to fight the fire because it's futile. And so they basically just are going to let it burn. And homeowners need to be aware that in a lot of cases, there's just no way firefighters can fight it. They're not going to try to fight it. And so homeowners have to do whatever they can in advance to keep their home safe. So it has a chance in a fire. You
3: know, when you said that, how 17 out of 19 homes will burn and it's strange how a home will be standing and the rest of the block is all burned you know and i say that because this last summer there was all these conspiracy theories saying that they were planned burns they were taking out people's homes like you know the conspiracy world and that's why certain homes could still be standing in blocks that were burned you know it's just it's crazy people that we're living with now
1: Yeah, I mean, so much of that is just uh, topography is one of the things I mean, for sure, you know, um, the wind, you know, here in California, we get these strong winds uh, here in uh, my area, we call them Santa Ana winds, and they blow really insanely hard and super hot. And so depending on where you live and how the winds hit your home or don't hit your home, you know, if you're directly in the path of the Santa Ana winds, then when those embers, you know, when these trees catch on fire, homes catch on fire and these embers are being blown by the wind, if you're downwind in kind of one of these wind corridors, you're getting embers, you know, pelting your house. And some other homes have better topography, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's also luck, um, you know, and all all different factors are involved. You know, we, we sprayed our house with a fire retardant called FOSCHECK. Um, and our home is a Victorian home, and if you know anything about a Victorian home, it's all wood, wood decks, wood balconies. Mm. There's wood coming out of the wood. <laughs> so if any home should have burned to the ground, it should have been ours. But the fact that we did this gelling, we sprayed this Foscheck, this fire retardant, uh we strongly believe it saved our home.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. You know, so it's a it's a it's a great book, and uh, and and your new book too. Now, I, before I my typical beginning question would be you know, what brought you to write this book. And, and, but I have to make a comment here. I've just realized that both these books are very personal to you. They're about your life. You're actually sharing your own experience, your own life, um, to for everyone to see, read, and comment on. Um, the, the, I always say that takes a little bit of courage because nowadays with social media and, the, the people out there. I, I, I think it's pretty amazing that you're just all open and letting people see what, what you, what you've done. And um, so what, what gave you that courage to decide to go, let's, let's write Roos.
1: Um, I was at a writer's conference some years ago and um, I read a very early excerpt from the book. Um, and I was really, the, 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 what I was reading had a lot to do with my father. And, and my father's a, a big part of the book. Um, and as I was reading this stuff about the fa- my father, I was talking about a little bit about the corporate spying, this job that I fell into um, when I was a young man. I was working for my father in the family car business. And the Kerbeck uh, name is quite well known on the East Coast in automobiles. Um, my great-grandfather, was sold horse carriages before cars were invented, and created the first Kerbeck car dealership in 1899. And then my grandfather took it over. Then my father took it over, and I was supposed to take it over. And so I, when I graduated from college, I worked there briefly, and it just wasn't for me. I I just didn't the 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 car sales thing and certain kind of trickery and and um, and you know dishonesty. It just wasn't for me. And I really wanted to be an actor, so I moved to New York uh, to try to be an actor, and I needed a survival job. And who stumbles into a survival job as a corporate spy? But that's exactly what I did, which, of course, ended up being quite ironic because the spying, (laughs) the lying involved in corporate spying was far worse than car sales. (laughs) Um, right but, of course, but at first, you know when I first got the job, I really didn't even know what it was i you know and and the spying just kind of you know it was kind of like uh, I just kept getting pulled deeper and deeper into the world of corporate espionage.
3: It's funny, you could be jumping on cars with a hammer and screaming at the t v screen you know
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know there's so many yeah. Of...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, my cousins do those ads, and you can <laughs> google that and and you'll see them doing some pretty funny stuff.
2: Do you feel that uh, your, uh, what you learned from car sales helped you with that kind of job? Or was that in any way related?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the reason that I was successful as a corporate spy um, was a very unique kind of combination, intersection of skills. One of them, you know, I came from a business family that was very entrepreneurial. Um, Because car dealers are very entrepreneurial because, you know, they've got to, if they don't sell cars, they don't make money and they go broke, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that business had been in my family for, you know, 120 years. Um, So there was that kind of business gene and understanding about sales. And then, of course, I became an actor, right? So as an actor, you're playing parts, you're creating characters. And one of the things involved in this corporate spying is I would be creating a character creating um, a backstory um, because my job I was tasked with was calling major American corporations and often international corporations to determine what my clients wanted to know about that company. And so I had to come up with a story that was believable Because remember, the people that I was rusing with these stories, these are, you know, very smart people, very well-educated people, and trained not to release this kind of information, and certainly not to release it over the telephone. Um, And so I had to be really good, uh, very improvisational, um, and, you know, that that kind of skill set of the business sales side, and then the acting side, really just, you know, made me, you know, for better or for worse, Um, because, you know, like I say, sometimes in the book, um, I'm not proud of what I did, but it is quite a story. uh, People are always interested in it. And that's what I found out when I first read at that writer's conference is people said, oh, my God, we did not know this world existed. We did not know major American corporations. And again, international corporations are spending tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other.
3: You know, but how did you fall into this? And I say that because, again, you know, when I was young, um, I was waitering, you know, and I was working at department Mm. stores. I was doing those kind of things to get um, further in life and to pay for things and go through college. And and, uh, so where does one find a job like this? (laughs) You know, because like for me, you know, I don't understand. You know, for me, it was like going out to to restaurants and applying. But uh, uh, where did this come from?
1: Yeah. And I think that's the thing that is incredible in that I'm trying to get out. I'm trying so hard to get out of kind of this world, this car sales world. And I want to be an actor and I want to, you know, follow art and be pure and all of that stuff that you feel when you're young. And uh, what are the odds that I stumble into this corporate spying world? And it just turned out that My college roommate's brother was in New York. He was trying to be an actor. I said, Oh, I need a job. Do you know any jobs? I got to get a job. He said, Well, I got this job. And, uh, I said, well, what is it? And he said, Well, you know, it's just, you know, it's like a phone thing. Well, what kind of phone thing? Well, you know what? Why don't you just go meet the woman whose company it is and, and she'll tell you about it. He was very mysterious. He didn't. Really, give me a lot of details. And, you know, I was trying to get other jobs, and this was just one job. So I didn't ask a lot of questions. I just got the name of the woman who ran the company and set up an interview and went to the Upper East Side to her place. And she lived in this doorman building. And when I went into her place, it was, you know, beautiful. And right away I could tell whatever she did, it was lucrative. Um, and I, I, it's funny because it was kind of like a Mrs. Robinson scene, you know, (laughs) you know, where I, I, I feel like she was drinking a martini and it was 1130 in the morning. And, and, uh, you know, and of course, you know, when you write memoirs, sometimes it's hard to remember exactly how things were, but, but she definitely was, you know, she was an older woman. She kind of was finding me attractive and she never told me anything about what the job was. She just asked a bunch of questions about, um. Interestingly enough, my father and the car business and leaving the car business. And was my father okay with that? And that and to make sure I protected that relationship. And, um, and I remember being kind of stunned that she wasn't asking me about my skills. Um, she wasn't asking me. She didn't ask me for a resume. She didn't tell me anything about what the job was. And the next thing I know, uh, she was saying, you know, okay, see you later. And I walked out the door kind of stunned and called my buddy. And, um, and he said, you're hired. And I said, but I don't know anything about the job. She didn't say anything about the job. He said, don't worry. You'll find out when you start training. And, um, and so then when I did go the first day to train, I trained with this young woman who at the time um, you know, was living in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, which back then was uh, hell on earth. Uh, it was during the crack epidemic. Uh, you know, I, in the book, I say, you know, there were no hipsters with beards living in Williamsburg when I was working there. It was just a very, uh, run down and scary place. And I went up to this young woman's apartment. She had a, a a giant bathtub in the middle of the kitchen. Um, you know, it was a really old school New York flat. Um, and she began to teach me and show me what we were doing. Um, we were obtaining information on corporations, um, their organizational charts, what uh, every department in the company did, who were the top people in the departments, what the company was up to, were they in acquisition mode, were they adding people, were they letting go of it, What anything and everything that we could find out about that corporation. Like it basically was get the playbook for this corporation. Um, and we would get that information and then our clients would use that information for their own purposes. And remember, you know, I'm talking now back in the 90s, early 90s, when I started, you know, there was really no internet and there certainly was no LinkedIn, right? right. And so there was no way for corporations to know who was at a competitor, let alone who was really good at a com- at a competitor, right? And that's what they wanted to know is, you know, who were the top three sales guys on the sales desk at Goldman Sachs? Who were the top three traders on the trading desk at Credit Suisse? Um And later on, that same thing was true in other industries, you know, because we worked across uh, industries, even though we mainly focused on Wall Street, because that was kind of where the money was. But as time went on, we did do a lot of work in the tech space. And then it was, who are the top designers? What are the products they're designing? And all of this information was incredibly valuable to our clients. At one point, I tell the story of There was this major trading desk at Morgan Stanley in the mid aughts. So, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, and they were doing trades and making Morgan Stanley hundreds of millions of dollars. And then they did one trade where they made a billion dollars Morgan Stanley on one trade. And it was an eight person team. And I was tasked with finding out the names of those eight individuals, by the way, a number of those individuals are in the big short movie. (laughs) And, You would think like, well, you know, first of all, how hard could it be to find the eight names of those traders on that team? Well, I'll tell you right now, it was impossible. Those that group was locked down so hard. Nobody was saying anything. A lot of times when you would even try to call up and find information on these groups, they would laugh in your face and hang up the phone. Um, And yet at at the end of the day, I found the names, uh, those eight names of that group, sent them along to my client. And people say, "Well, what, what was that worth to your clients?" And I say, "Some significant portion of a billion dollars."
3: Mm. Wow! Wow! So it was it was a it was a good job.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a good job for me, and 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 yeah, well, yeah, it was a good job for me. Yeah, right. And that was kind of the heyday of the job, right before the crash, because again, LinkedIn really. It was created before the crash, but LinkedIn didn't explode until the uh, 2008 uh, Great Recession. And what happened was because of the crash, because so many people lost their jobs and so many people were afraid they were going to lose their jobs, everybody started going on LinkedIn. Everybody started posting their background and resume on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden, LinkedIn started to become a source for a lot of information, which in the past had been non-public information and suddenly entered the public domain. Right. And we've seen that 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 this this wave of digital transparency that has occurred in just I mean, you could say in the last you know five years, certainly in the last 10 years, where all of this information that formerly was private has now become public. But when I was really and remember, I haven't been spying for quite some time, but when I was doing my spying, most of the information that we were getting, there was no other way to get it unless you hired a spy like me to to do it for you.
2: Well, and uh, here you were helping these people with these billion-dollar deals and all that sort of thing. How much were you getting paid during that time?
1: Uh, Well, you know, for a a lot of the time I was doing spying, I was getting $8 an hour, (laughs) which sounds sounds pretty ludicrous. uh, And it was ludicrous. But the woman that I was working for, the woman that hired me, that had this firm – um, you know, we kept trying to get more money from her because we knew she was making a ton of money off of our work. And we started getting better at the spying and, and coming up with more elaborate ploys that got us more and more information that was more, you know, the value of our information just kept increasing. Um, but she was a, you know, very, you know, shrewd business person and, you know, kind of knew that there weren't any other spy companies I didn't know of any, I didn't know if any other existed. I mean, I assumed that there was some, but you know, like you said earlier, Al, it's not something you can look up like, oh, well, you know, you you couldn't Google back then, you know, spy companies and, and apply for another job, you know? So we were, you know, we were kind of stuck there, you know? And so we were at the mercy of whatever she was going to pay us. So for many years, I really didn't make much money at all. And I didn't care because the job was only a means to an end, because it was there just to support my acting career. And um, as you guys know from reading the book, you know, I, I had, uh, I did have an acting career, you know, it wasn't quite the career that I wanted, but I did work consistently for 10, 15 years and had an agent and did 50 TV shows, you know, big parts in TV shows and worked with, you know, George Clooney and Paul Newman and Callista Flockhart and James Gandolfini uh, in lead roles opposite them um, and so I kept thinking that the acting career was going to take off and any day the spying was going to go by the wayside. And then suddenly at a certain point um, in the late 90s, uh, right around 99, 2000, you know, I, I booked a bunch of TV pilots and none of the pilots got picked up. And all of a sudden I, it was kind of demoralizing because it was all of a sudden the moment where I went, wow, you know, maybe this acting thing isn't going to happen. You know, Maybe I'm not going to really be able to support myself and, and have a family and buy a home and take my wife out to dinner. And that was the moment where at the same time, the demand for this corporate intelligence, this corporate espionage uh, became greater and greater. And everybody wanted what we had. And all of a sudden, people started throwing money at me people found me. I never knew how people found me and started hiring me to spy for them. And, and that was kind of when I, that was the the moment I kind of crossed over to the dark side there for a while, where I really went heavy into the espionage as my acting career faded away.
3: You know, um, but when you started getting heavy into it and moving into that, um, full time, we'll say, um, were you worried about getting into trouble? Like, was there some some sort of laws that you were breaking by doing this?
1: For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we had over the years, a couple of close calls um, at one point. Um, and I detailed this in the book, you know, m- m- my buddy that got me the job in the book, his name is Pax. Um, he and I were very close. We were very close friends. And at one point um, he had authorities that had come to his home um and they were very um insistent uh he happened to be out but his landlord uh said that they were you know very upset very intense um and um he had to call them right away uh or he was going to be in big trouble and but he called me first which was really quite a miracle and um and we started talking about it and i said well who you know who were these investigators he said uh, he didn't know. And did they show a badge? And, you know, he asked the landlord, he didn't know. they didn't, he didn't think so. You know, so we, we couldn't quite tell were the FBI, you know, we didn't know who they were, you know? And I said, look, we don't know who they, who they were. You know, it's uh, the famous uh, David Mamet play, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? You don't open your mouth until you know what the shot is. And we didn't know what the shot was. We didn't know who they were. We didn't know what they had on us. Um, and so I said, look, you need to, get out of your apartment, go stay with your girlfriend, and we need to figure this out. And and fortunately he listened. Um, and shortly thereafter, we found out that this um, man named Kevin Mitnick was arrested. Uh, and this would have been in the mid nineties. And Kevin was arrested as a domestic terrorist. Oh, wow. They put him in a, put him in a cell um, uh, for 23 hours a day, solitary confinement. Kevin had been hacking into companies as the internet was being created. And he was hacking into these companies and causing all kinds of grief and turmoil, um, shutting down systems uh, and doing all of this stuff. Apparently Kevin was only doing it for fun. He wasn't getting any money out of it. He was just a, a young guy who was really into hacking and really phenomenal at it. Well, the authorities somehow, thought that we were kevin mitnick and they started coming after us and that was that was a real kind of whoa moment where you know i was like hey we're just actors (laughs) with the gift of gab trying to make eight dollars an hour so we can go to these auditions right you know and that was a a real kind of a a wake-up call in terms of um the the potential seriousness uh and the potential um you know, trouble we could get into, and um, so we we really you know had to kind of reconvene and 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 think about what we were doing and try to do things in a different way. Um, and fortunately, we never did get thrown in into that cell um, and um, and get arrested. We had a lot of other close calls, um, but I think you know even though what we were doing was illegal and it certainly was at least quasi illegal and for sure it was unethical. Um, I think that, you know, Pax describes this at one point in the book as brain surgeons, uh, even though clearly we're not brain surgeons, um, but the idea being that our job was to go in and extract the information we needed without causing any other damage or harm, right? So we, our job was to go in as quietly with as much stealth as possible. Get the information so that hopefully the person that we got the information from on the phone had no idea, believed we were who we said we were, went about their day, and nobody was the wiser. And fortunately, we were so good at the job that that was the case, of, you know, the vast majority of times.
2: Well, you say you went full time around the late 90s, and of course, very soon after that, you have 2001, one, nine eleven, and... Obviously, a lot changed at that time. Did that affect your work very much or?
1: Uh, well, I think the thing that affected the work more than nine eleven 11 was, um, remember the Y2K bug? Oh, yeah. Right. Right. So, right. So, everyone was afraid in 1999 that come 2000, all the computers were going to fail and crash because, of the the original way the uh computers were set up to log the year you know they was just set up with two digits rather than four digits and you know everybody was panicked and that was an example of us using uh because pax was the one who figured out that we could use that to our advantage and so we were the computer guys at these firms uh that were that our job was to fix this and so we would call people up saying look We're working on the Y2K bug. We got to fix this stuff. But you know what? We've got to re-input all the information by hand. So I need you to tell me this. I need you to tell me that. I need you to help me with this. I need you, and everybody was like, "Oh, sure, no problem. We we know this Y two K thing is serious. Whatever you need." And so that the Y two K bug was a really, you know, we used that for quite some time. (laughs) Even after two thousand, we kept using it, saying, "Well, you know, there've been a couple of glitches from Y two K. We're still trying to fix them, you know." Um, And that was just an example of how, in the job, you really tried to utilize what was going on in the world. to your advantage in terms of getting people to, to divulge information.
3: Were you ever worried about the corporations coming after you? Because there's going to be some of them that have their own spies. And, and even now, like when you releasing a book, talking about um, all of the things you've done, you, you worried about any sort of backlash? Uh,
1: well, first of all, you know, my spying is is in the rear view mirror. Right. Um, I haven't done this for quite some time. I think well over a decade. I don't know the exact date that I did the last call, but it's, you know, it's a long time ago now. Um, and so the statute of limitations uh, for whatever, um, you know, potential crimes I committed is, is long past. In terms of the corporations, what I did in the book, because look, no corporation is going to be one. Want- No, no corporation is going to want to be accused of um, hiring spies Um, and they're all going to claim, um, even if they were caught hiring someone like me, they're going to say, well, we had no idea that Robert did this. we, we, We never would have hired him if we had known he was doing this. And of course, I'm here to tell you that these corporations knew exactly what I was doing. And indeed, I presented my information on multiple occasions in person Two individuals who today are one step from being the CEOs of their respective financial institutions, which are some of the largest ones in the world. Right. So just think about that for a second. So these are people that are going to be the CEOs of these firms and they were receiving this information directly from me. Um, So corporations do it. It, It's a dirty secret, um, but they all do it. They all know they do it. Um, and in terms of them coming after me, one thing I did do in the book, um, because look, let's face it, these firms have a lot of money and a lot of lawyers and I don't really have much of, you know, I don't have a lot of money and I certainly don't have any lawyers. So I did not want to even deal with the kind of harassment of a suit, even if it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so in the book, I changed the names of the corporations, um, that I was spying for and that I was getting information for, um, to give myself a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, safety there.
2: One thing I found, uh, or the thing that actually caught my attention about your book was the title, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. In particular, because of the uh, comparison of Hollywood and Wall Street, uh, and of corporate spying and all that sort of thing, I'm wondering if you saw a parallel between those worlds that you were in, you know, the Hollywood and uh, studios in Australia and then the corporations that you uh, work
1: for? Well, you know, I think, you know, for better or for worse, uh, and I think it's usually for worse, um, there's so much lying that goes on in our world, right? And, and and I'm not judging that because I don't I you know I have you know I have no moral high ground to, to stand on because I was a corporate spy and that's that's what spies do and by the way that's what all spies do you know that's what James Bond does and you know everybody that's really a spy they're lying all day long they're lying about who they are they're lying about you know where they're going they're lying about what they do um, my high school classmate believe it or not is Valerie Plame who's the most famous former CIA agent in the world um, Valerie and I went to high school together which I, I I still can't get over that two spies went to the same small uh, Philadelphia high school um, what are the odds of that um, but um, you know I just think that there's so much lying that goes on in our society right we've seen it recently with you know what is the truth right what is the truth you know uh, is the you know covid vaccine is it has it been developed by scientists that went to the finest schools and, um, and have developed this vaccine that is incredibly effective at, pre- at preventing this terrible disease? Or is it a hoax that is going to implant, you know, all, all of the other stuff you hear, right? Um, and so, and we've, we've gotten that with the politics, you know, where, you know, what's the truth? You know, who is telling the truth? You know, which stations are telling the truth? You know, it's really a fascinating time. And, you know, one of the things about Hollywood and Wall Street is, you know, there's a lot of um, bravado um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, lying and, you know, and, and people are lying to your face. They loved you. Uh, and when they may have hated you, you did a great job. Or you may have done a terrible job, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and in the book at one point uh, after the crash of 2008, I, I have, you know, I have a home and I have now I have a mortgage and a family and, all of a sudden, I had no income, and so I needed to take a job. And so I take a job with this executive recruiting firm in New York, and I start traveling to New York and meeting in person with all these big executives. Um, and what I found, much to my dismay, was that the lying done on Wall Street, face-to-face, felt much worse than the lying that I had been doing previously over the phone. And that was really shocking to me how much – How? how the, the office politics um, and how somebody would say something to your face and then literally five minutes later was talking behind your back to somebody else on your team. And, you know, it was really incredible to me. I was shocked by it. Um, and maybe I was naive, I don't know. But, um, and maybe that was just Wall Street, you know, that kind of you know, cutthroat dog-eat-dog world. Um, but, but the lying done face-to-face was really um, astounding.
2: Well, and that's actually what fascinates me about you being in those different worlds, because that's the experience I've had in Hollywood, because uh, mm. I have a lot of the same sort of background, or, or not, not in terms of corporate spying, but in terms of being in the film industry and all that sort of thing, and I've been to many pitches and uh, meetings and you know, uh, the studios, all that sort of thing. And everything you're saying, it's so familiar to me because I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how it felt for me. I don't know if you've had any similar experiences in Hollywood as you did, but, but I'm just curious about if there's a, if you have any comparison of the two or if you, it just simply wasn't the experience you've had.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, what what's funny is, and maybe sad too, <laughs> you know, uh, both. I'm lying to you. You're lying to me. I know you're lying to me and you know, I'm lying to you. Mm -hmm. That would be my definition of Hollywood, (laughs) Uh, you know, where it's just, and that was, that's really an amazing thing that, that the lying is, it's become um, accepted. Mm -hmm. Right. It's accepted. It's, it's how business is conducted. You don't tell someone the truth, right. You lie to them. Now, what happens is, is over time, Jeff, I'm sure you learned, you learned to go, oh, okay. So when they said this, what it really meant was this, Yep. right? Right. So you, you basically, it's almost like you have to learn a foreign language, right? right. You know, um, I remember when I first came out to Los Angeles, uh, you know, you'd meet someone, you'd have a nice conversation. They go, oh, well, you know, we should meet for lunch. We should meet for lunch. And I go, okay, great. Give me your phone number and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll call you and we'll set up a lunch. And they would look at me like I was crazy because they really didn't want to have lunch it was just a thing to say you know and that's such an LA thing you know um where it's just something that people say um and it's become kind of um normalized in the LA society that you say certain things that you really don't mean at all right
2: right Exactly. Yeah, I yeah, I couldn't say it better myself because that has exactly been very much my, of my experience. Yeah, and I'm so much of the kind of person who says what I mean that it, you're right. It's yeah, uh, like trying to learn a foreign language.
1: Right. And and it's funny. I, it, believe it or not, you know, because here I am telling you, I'm a, I'm a spy and I'm doing all this lying. But you know, at my core, I am a truth teller. You know, and one of the things when I was doing this rusing job is I made a decision very early on that I was not going to use the rusing in my regular life. I was not going to be rusing, you know, uh, friends, rusing family members, you know, even using my rusing skills to, you know, call the, my health insurance. Cause they were giving me, you know, I wasn't going to do that. It was almost like, you know, this was my, 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 my day job. And so I was going to keep it in this box. And, and I did a pretty good job of that. Um, and, you know, so like I said, you know, in my regular life I was a very straightforward person and 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 that was I think part of the thing that was so shocking to me that when I took the job on Wall Street and everybody was so duplicitous and I and I you know, and I was not a kid and yet I was so naive that people would be literally lying to your face when you knew they were lying to your face and they still did it and didn't care.
3: Mm. Yeah. That, when you started really getting into it, I just wonder how long it took you to get good at this and, and to come up with uh, ruses or stories to, to convince people to get their, the information from them. W- what was that process like?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, I always tell people, I mean, first off, there are you know a handful of people on the planet that can do this job. And maybe it's more than a handful, but it's not many because it really requires such a unique skill set. And and it's not just the, the morality of lying because, you know, as I did this job, friends would go, wow, you know, what's this job you're doing? And and of course, I wouldn't tell regular people, you know, if I maybe if I'd had a drink at a party and someone asked me what I did, I'd say corporate intelligence. And they'd say, well, what is that? And I'd say, well, if I told you, I'd have to take you out back and kill you, right? Um, but my close friends I would tell a little bit more and they were of course fascinated and they said oh my god you know if I could get a job you know that you know paid paid well because as years went on it did start to to be you know lucrative um, and if, oh boy if I could have a job I could work from home and set my own hours and on the phone and you know remember you know this is obviously way before COVID when the world changed and all of a sudden everybody worked from home and, and everybody was working remotely but you know 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, 25, you know, nobody worked from home. And so the idea that you could work from home and set your own hours and make good money, everybody was interested in that job. And so I had pretty much all of my friends at some point come in and try to do the ruse. And I mean, not one of them, forget about lasting a day. Most didn't even last an hour and a good majority lasted one phone call. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they just, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't, you know, the concentration required, um, you know, um, creating a story, figuring out what you were trying to get, you know, how to, you know, all of that stuff so being a, a, you know, one of the things about being great on the phone is it's not just being a great talker. It's being a great listener, right? I mean, I became an, a master listener. I could hear in the silence on the line, what the person was thinking about whether they were going to give me the information or not. Right. Yeah. And so I always said that when a person had the right skills which is a very rare thing it took a year to make a good researcher a year mm. um that's a lot of time yeah. you know that's a lot of time to get rid of no but now you could also argue when you look at most careers you know it, it you don't get you don't become a great basketball player in 3 months right it takes a, a lot of time a lot of practice um and so so that I think that that's pretty accurate um if you did if you were one of those rare individuals that had the kind of unique combination of skills um uh and you you were willing to go for it, it took about a year and then after a year, you were pretty good
3: Yeah, Charles Manson would make a good one
1: <laughs> i don't i don't well I don't know you know that, I, you know that, a good that, listener. That, that's kind of, well i don't I don't know enough about Charles Manson but uh, I would say no, actually, I would say no, because, um, look, besides the fact that that individual is crazy, all the people that were successful at this job were, um, were pretty regular individuals. And I think that was the thing that was, you know, most surprising. Um, you know, the, there were women, you know, when I first took this job, the, the woman that hired me only hired women because she didn't think men could do the job. Um, she only hired women and she was very hesitant to hire uh, my buddy Pax, who then got me the job. We were the first two men she hired. And then after us, we were the only men she had had, you know, she, the a couple, she hired a couple more women after us. Um, she felt that women could do the job better. Um, so, um, but all of the people she hired were really actually quite nice and normal people. Um, and I think there was something about that that enabled us to do the job because We, you know, we were just taught, you know, when we were rusing someone, we were talking to them um, and winning them over in a sort of a a camaraderie. We were creating a camaraderie um, that was quite normal, right? Like we were just, you know, part of the corporate team. They were a part of the corporate team. These were the things we needed to do to make the corporation successful, to make the corporation work well together. Um, And so everybody's on the same team. So let's play nice and please tell me this information because I really need it.
3: Mm. what was the hardest thing you had to change about yourself in order to fit into this job
1: um well look of course there's the ethical question right the moral question um you know in the opening of the book i, I dedicate the book to my mother um who always told me not to lie you know um and she did, she said, you know, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, and and, and for the most part, I didn't until I got this job. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, that's the hard thing. Uh, and so one of the things I did to justify it, you know, in terms of, and this is just rationalization, it's not excuse making, but, you know, much of the information that we got, if not most of the information we got, the end use was to get people better jobs, right? Um, you know, we weren't stealing people's credit cards uh, and getting their credit card number and running up bills on their credit cards like all of us have, have had happen to us in the last few years, right? We weren't doing anything like that, you know, even though, quite frankly, I could have easily done that. Um, so, you know, the information we were getting was designed to help get people better jobs. And then the other thing that I, as time went on, started to do more of is um, I targeted for my information, um, the the big executives, the big shots. Um, and I did that one because these are the individuals that are making a ton of money. And so I didn't feel as bad about rusing them because they're making millions of dollars a year, if not tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, though part of the reason that I started rusing the big shot executives was because they were far easier marks than the assistants and receptionists who were trained gatekeepers. And so a lot of times the gatekeepers were far more difficult to get information from because that was their job, right? And we learned, or at least I learned, and then I helped PAX realize that, you know, a lot of times if we called after hours and the assistants and receptionists had gone home, the executives would answer their phones. And they were um, much more user-friendly to give information uh, up that they shouldn't give. And so that was just a little, a little thing I did to make my, myself feel better about it, um, so that I was mainly rusing the people that, you know, in my humble opinion, um, were being extremely well compensated, and so I, I, did, I just didn't feel too bad about 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 th- those particular calls.
3: And it says now you also were screwed and screwed celebrities as well. Um, how did uh, how did that get into corporate spying?
1: Well, you know, when I when the crash of two thousand eight came and I had to take this job at this executive recruiting firm. Um, the executive recruiting firm, you know, the kind of the number two person there had been using me for spying for years and knew I was this great spy. And he said, OK, we're going to bring you out of the out of the the, the basement, um, though I, I ruse from a surf shack. So you know, he was going to bring me out of the surf shack. He was going to bring me to New York and he was going to take me into the conference rooms and meet all the big CEOs, which I did. And he was basically saying, you know, we're going to, you know, you know, you're going to be big. People are going to love you. Corporate intelligence is the future. And we're going to buy your business. And this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. We're going to buy your business and you're going to get really well known and you're going to make more money than you've ever dreamed possible. And at the time, you know, this was during the crash and I hadn't made money for about a year. And, you know, bills, mortgage, you know, you know, things were not looking good. So I was very uh, amenable to that. Um And, um, you know, and then again, of course, what I found out was that it was all a ruse. Uh, They were rusing me, um, which, of course, is pretty funny, you know, that the guy who's who's the spy and is and is conning people to get information. I fell for their ruse, which was they were going to buy my business, which they never did, (laughs) and that they were going to do this for me, which they never did. You know, and basically they just used me because they had this big assignment And they needed all this information and they wanted to get me exclusively so that I could deliver all this intelligence that they needed for this massive, massive project for this huge financial institution. And basically, once I delivered all this information that made them an insane amount of money, they no longer needed me and they cut me loose for nothing. Um, And so it's and again, that was part of the thing. You know, you would think that this guy That spying, um, you know, has a certain level of whatever sophistication. And and yet here I was so naive that I got suckered just like everybody else in America at some point. We all get suckered. We all get duped. Right. Somehow, some way, you know, and it's just ironic in the book um, that, you know, I got my comeuppance too. (laughs) I like that particular
2: part. Uh, you know, also, actually, this is a more detailed question, but I just, I got to thinking about the the name PAX. It was a, it was a curious name to choose, you know, Mm. because of course, yeah, it's it's not as real name as one that you chose. Was there a reason you chose it? I know it has a certain Latin meaning, but was it because of
1: the, the Latin meaning or is
2: it, was it just purely a, uh, you know, something made up?
1: Uh, it was sort of made up, but of course I was aware, you know, what, you know, what Pax meant. And um, I went through a whole bunch of names. I really did, you know, for a lot of the characters, I mean, you know, picking a name when you, when you know the name of the real individual um, it, it gets hard sometimes because obviously you identify that person with that name. Right. And then of course, also in a book and, you know, the writers out there will understand this too. You know, you can't have, you know, many people in the book with names that begin with the same letter, right. Or look similar to other names um, because it's distracting for the reader. So, you know, you've kind of got to go through all your characters and go, okay, well, have I used P before? You know, oh, I didn't. Okay, great. (laughs) I could find a P, you know. So, so there is a little bit of that too, you know, is that you're not just picking any name that you like. Um, because, you know, I, you know, certain characters, certain names came up pretty quickly and I felt good about certain names. And then once you had those names locked in and one of them began with an R, one of them began with an S, you're like, okay, well, those are out now. I got to find a P or a T or, you know, um, and those are just things that you learn as a writer. Um, because at the end of the day, my job is, is to make the book, uh, you know, as fun and, uh, I don't know if easy is the right word, but, but, you know, to, to make the book um, you know, compelling to read. And I think if the reader is getting confused because, you know, you've got, you know, Ben and Glenn on the same page, uh, you know, or, you know, Bill and Jill or, you know, or, you know, Bill and Bob or w- whatever names might on the page kind of be a little confusing and disorienting for a split second. We don't want that for the reader. We don't want the reader stopping to go, what, what, was it, which character was that again? Wait a second, is that the guy? You know, we don't want that. We want them to know exactly who you're talking about at all times. Unless, for example, you don't want them to know that for some conscious reason as the writer, right? And as you guys know from the mystery world, there may be a time where you don't want the reader to know, you know, who a particular character is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my book, because my book is is obviously nonfiction, but it does read like a spy novel. Um, um, so, so, but. You know, so I, I didn't do any of that per se, but there are some times where you kind of unsure what's going on, um, but that's conscious, right? Um, you don't kind of know whether I'm going to get the information or what the information I'm after is or, or how I'm going to play it to get the information, right? So that the reader is hopefully compelled to go, oh wow, I'm turning this page, I'm turning this page because I want to know, how does he get it? Does he get it? You know, wh- what is the story he uses to get it, Right.
3: Mm. so when someone picks up this book takes it home reads it at the end of the book what is it you hope they take away from it
1: you know i hope that people have a good time i hope that people have a good time you know and they go wow i never knew this world existed i never knew about corporate spine this is crazy um and you know and i hope that 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 uh ride for them is exhilarating and fun because, look, we've all been through this pandemic, uh, which has not been fun, obviously, at all. Um, we've lost a lot of people. I've had friends die tragically from COVID. And um, I feel like, you know, we need, you know, we need something that is, 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 you know, interesting because, like I said, corporate spying, nobody knows about it. But but I think there's also sort of some of it is is funny, you know, I mean, when I'm doing accents to get information and pretending I'm a German character or pretending uh, pretending I'm Irish or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's there's just some humor in that. Right. Um, and then, of course, when I go to work at the recruiting firm and I find out that the people are worse liars, you know, you know, all of those things, there's just a lot of fun and humor in those in those chapters and those scenes. It's
3: crazy. Um Let's talk about your social media and website. How? What is your website and how do you like people to get in contact with you?
1: Thank you. Yeah, my website, I, I, I just redid it. It looks great. I'm really proud of it. Uh, it's robertkerbeck.com. So just, you know, Um And I'm, you know, at Robert Kerbeck on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you know, I, you know i think people can reach out to me i don't have any uh, you know i know some people oh you know i don't want you to send me a message here i don't want you to dm me you, however people want to reach out whatever's easiest for them they want to dm me on facebook or on instagram or twitter they want to email me via my website uh, whatever they like to do whatever's easiest for them i, I love hearing from 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 uh, readers because as as you both know you know uh, it's not easy to write a book and it's not easy to read a book. You know, we have so many demands on our time. Right. Uh, and, and, and certainly so many entertainment demands. Right. We could watch a TV show. We could listen to a podcast. We could go for a walk. You know, there's so many things. So when somebody sits down and reads my book, I mean, I'm just so grateful. And if they have a question and they want to reach out about something that makes my day.
3: Yeah, no, it's a good thing. We'll have that all on our website as well. So people can do one click and they'll find you real easy. So, uh, Hey, and one, one question that's really, it's had me since almost the beginning, and this is the one I have to ask because I know listeners will want me to ask. Um, so did you have to sleep with that? Mrs. Robinson, the one that owned the business? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) No, no, I never did. I never did. You know, she, uh, was a really lovely woman. And, and even though she was a, like I said, she was a really shrewd business person. Um, you know, we developed a very, uh, uh, sweet relationship. Um, and, um, she never had children. And so in a certain sense, her researchers, you know, her corporate intelligence experts kind of became her children. Um, and, um, And and later, and I talk about this book later, you know, throughout the book, she's constantly trying to find a boyfriend. She's searching the personal for finding a boyfriend. And later she did find a boyfriend very late in life. Uh, At that point, I think she was in her 50s, mid 50s. Uh, She'd never, never been married. And she found someone and got married. Um, So I was really happy for her.
3: Well, that's a good story, but you can tell us the truth off air. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a- well, there's,
1: there's plenty, there's plenty of sex in the book. It's, oh, it's, you know, well, there's plenty. Yeah. There
3: we go. We're ready. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. It always is good talking to you. And, uh, now the book we're talking about, of course, is Ruse and it's lying the American dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Our guest is the writer, Robert Kerbeck. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you both.
3: That was great.
0: Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website
2: in the Shapiro Report.
3: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com.
2: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
0: Well, good night.